Hello, and welcome to The Overtake. I'm your host, John Bozella, the president and CEO of the Alliance for Automotive Innovation. This podcast is about the automotive industry and the people, events, and policies that shape it. Today, we're talking about the rise of electric vehicles. To the casual observer, it may seem that the rapid development of EVs and their increasing share of the new vehicle market has happened overnight. In reality, this transformation has taken many years to unfold and not to mention many twists and turns. Today's guest, Professor John Graham of the O'Neill School of Public and Environmental Affairs at Indiana University, is here to tell us the story of how we have arrived at this point and explain the various influences that have played a role and will continue to play a role in the proliferation of EVs. In addition to an academic career that has included stints at Harvard University and the Pardee Rand Graduate School, Professor Graham has worked on domestic and international policy at the highest levels of government, including serving as administrator of the Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs under President George W. Bush. A true expert on the automotive industry, Professor Graham has also conducted research with the auto industry and other top industry stakeholders. And earlier this year, he published a new book titled Global Rise of the Modern Plug-in Electric Vehicle which traces the evolution and adoption of the electric vehicle from the 1970s until now. Professor, so good to see you again. Thanks for joining us. You know, I'd like to start with a little bit of background. Tell us what you did in the George W. Bush administration. It's It's an agency probably not a lot of people know about. So give us a little bit of a flavor for its role in the federal government. Well, the Office of Management and Budget is best known for preparing uh, the president's budget request to Congress every year. But there's also another little unit, the M within OMB, that is responsible for overseeing and managing the agencies of the federal government. And I ran an office that oversaw all the regulators, and boy, the regulators kept me busy for five years. I can only imagine. And and when you oversee the regulators, what, how just a little bit more of a perspective, what what does that mean? How do you, for example, how do you look at regulation? Is it a balance uh, between benefits and costs? Is it a is it a focus on the public interest? Is it a combination of those things? What is it that you're looking at when you're looking at regulation? Well, the the OMB has two two responsibilities is one responsibility. And I think it's the most important one is to make sure that the regulatory decisions that are coming out of the administration are consistent with the president's priorities of where the president wants to take the country and what the president's trying to do with the economy. And then the second thing that's done is from a technical point of view, we make sure that each of these regulations is analyzed and meets the standards of cost-benefit analysis that are laid out by the Office of Management and Budget. So it has both a broadly political function and a narrowly technical function. Fascinating. Let's get into a subject now. It's the subject of your book. It was probably, if I recall, also the subject of some of your regulatory oversight in the George W. Bush administration, and that is electric vehicles. So why are we seeing 
this rise of, of the plug-in electric vehicle, as you call it in your book, now? Why now? Well, that's a great question. The in, in the 1970s, the first country in the world to get deeply interested in this was Japan. And they, they got interested as an island country that was heavily dependent on imported oil. And they were looking for an alternative that would bring energy security to, to the country. And then the second jurisdiction in the world to get interested was the state of California in the United States. And they did it for a completely different reason. They did it because Los Angeles was consistently ranked as the number one polluted city in America. And they wanted to change that. So you have two jurisdictions in the world deeply interested in a transition to electric cars. But the big problem was battery technology was not sophisticated enough to to reliably have an automobile system based upon electric vehicles. Yeah, I recall in my automotive history back at Ford Motor Company in the late 1990s, folks today who were looking at the F-150 Lightning, the all-new, just-released battery electric pickup truck by Ford Motor Company, might not recall that there was a fully electric pickup truck, an EV Ranger, back in 1998. Kind of significant in the differences, uh, the technology differences between that EV Ranger in roughly 1998 or 1999 and the, the F-150 Lightning that we see today, correct? Absolutely. And, uh, you know, it wasn't until the consumer electronics revolution and the emergence of lithium ion battery technology that you really had a chance to bring electric vehicles to the marketplace in a serious way. So it's really a spillover, what we call a technological spillover of one industry, consumer electronics to automotive, which is what really caused the electric vehicle to have a decent chance of commercialization. Yeah, if I recall the 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 EV Ranger pickup truck, the late 90s vintage vehicle was powered by lead acid batteries. And today as you point out, lithium ion batteries. So interesting that you 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 describe it as a spillover. So in other words, we the industry benefits from this innovation in the consumer space and now you're seeing that as an opportunity for for the technology really to proliferate in the vehicle space. But there would have had to have been several adaptations, correct, from lithium-ion batteries designed to power my smartphone, for example, and lithium-ion batteries powering vehicles today, right? So what are some of those adaptations and developments that needed to be made to get us to the place we are today? Well, one of the big issues to think about is is that if you have lithium ion batteries in your in your laptop or your cell phone, you may have less than a handful of these battery cells that are necessary. But when you talk about p- powering an automobile with lithium uh, power and using the electric motors uh, and the stored energy in the battery, you need literally thousands of these lithium ion battery cells. And they need to be organized in a, in a vehicle in some way. They need to be protected, have a cooling system to make sure that they don't overheat. And this whole challenge of adapting technology from a consumer electronics to automotive, we're actually still in that transition right now. 
because lots of different car companies have different ideas about the best way to do that. They're working with their suppliers and competing with each other. So we're still in the process of making automotive quality lithium ion batteries for motor vehicles. Yeah. You know, and that's a really important point, right? I mean, you know, that we haven't arrived at the end of the process yet. There's always innovation, competition, driving new solutions. I want to get into a little bit of consumer perspective about these vehicles. You talk about the benefits of these EVs in your of EVs in your book or or uh, plug-in vehicles as you call them. And and some of the maybe challenges or concerns that customers might have. So let's start with the benefits. Why why do customers like EVs? Well, one thing for people who are are very attentive to the acceleration capability of their vehicle. And for for many motorists, this is an extremely important piece. You have a very instant response of the vehicle to putting your foot on the gas, on, on the pedal, of the acceleration pedal. And with gasoline, you have the intervening variable of the transmission. But with an electric vehicle, you have a kind of a very instant response. So people will notice that when they accelerate from a, a small speed to a medium level speed. And that's one of the reasons, for example, that for pickup trucks, electric vehicles are considered particularly promising because there are a lot of pickup truck drivers who are really interested in that acceleration capability. So that's certainly the first thing that comes to mind for the consumer. A second important variable is even in the United States where gasoline prices are relatively low, say they're at $3 per gallon and parts of the country that are less than that. But if you compute the electricity equivalent gasoline price, it's down like one dollar or a dollar and a quarter per gallon. So the cost of operating an electric vehicle are significantly lower than a gasoline powered vehicle. And I hope in the back of your mind you're thinking, well wait a minute, if you're in Europe and it's seven dollars a gallon or Japan if it's six dollars a gallon, boy, these electric vehicles are financially an interesting proposition. Yeah. And so lower cost of ownership. You might also apply that lower cost of ownership idea to also the maintenance of the vehicle, right? Fewer moving parts, maybe less less to maintain. Would you agree? Yeah, there was an interesting teardown study of the Chevrolet Bolt, and they compared it to a, uh, which is a, a pure battery electric vehicle, and they compared it to the, I think it was to a Volkswagen gasoline-powered vehicle. Then there were only basically a dozen parts in the powertrain of the, of the Chevrolet Bolt, whereas there were you know, well over 100 in the Volkswagen vehicle. So it's a much simpler design product. The key, of course, though, is that battery, it has to be protected, it has to be maintained, and it has, and we have to make sure it doesn't degrade too quickly because it is a very expensive proposition to replace one of those lithium-ion batteries. Yeah, it is the core of the vehicle, certainly in terms of battery energy storage, but also in terms of cost, right? Yes. Single largest component of the cost of an electric vehicle is that lithium-ion battery. So let's talk about some of the, from a customer's point of view, some of the limitations you've, you've done and seen research as, as have I, you know, and certain terms come to mind, range anxiety, for example. So let's, let's talk a little bit about, you know, some of those perceptions that, that customers have about electric vehicles, some of the challenges. Well, there's a difference here between what the scientists look at and what the customer looks at. Scientists look at how people actually drive and they find out that in a vast majority of the trips people have, they don't go any more than 30 miles. But customers don't view the purchase of a vehicle that way. They view it from the perspective of what are their peak uses 
of a, their vehicle on Labor Day holiday, on in the Christmas or Thanksgiving holidays, and they think about traveling to see their family several states away, and they want a vehicle that can accomplish those and not have to be recharged. Even with the progress we've had with electric vehicles, I remember the first generation of these were typically did not have range above 100 miles. And now you have 200, 300, and 400 mile vehicles. But even these are not as attractive to, to a consumer as a gasoline powered vehicle because there are gasoline stations everywhere. And people feel comfortable and they're accustomed to having a five minute refueling proposition for their gasoline powered vehicle. With electric vehicles, we don't we don't yet have a fully developed infrastructure of charging stations. And even when you have charging stations, it may take you several hours to get a full charge. And it may be very expensive to get a so-called fast charge. So we have a lot of work to do on building the infrastructure to support the modern plug-in electric vehicle. Yeah, I want to come back to that, you know, that idea in a minute or so. But I, th- I think this might be also a good time to explain that when we're talking about plug-in vehicles, you know, they, they come in a few different varieties, right? So let's make sure that we have an opportunity to level set with our audience, right? So you've got, let's, let's talk about the, you know, three different types of plugins that we're talking about when we use the general category plug-in vehicle. Well, when I think of the first category, I think of the Pioneer, which would be Nissan Leaf one of the earliest relatively affordable battery electric vehicles. It runs entirely on electric power, no gasoline engine. And in its early versions, it only went 75 or 80 miles. It's been much better than that today in its range. So you have the purely battery electric vehicle. Then you have vehicles that combine gasoline power with battery uh, storage and electric power. And there you have, for example, the plug-in hybrid electric vehicle, And there are several examples of that. Mitsubishi has been, on a global basis, one of the most successful sellers of plug-in hybrid electric vehicles. And then you have the traditional, conventional hybrid electric vehicle, the Toyota Prius, for example, which doesn't rely on any access to the grid, but garners its its energy from the, the braking process in the vehicle. So you have conventional hybrids, you have plug-in hybrids, and you have fully battery-operated vehicles. And we might add to that hydrogen fuel cell vehicle, which is a different type of electric vehicle, but still an electrified vehicle, correct? Absolutely, yes. In fact, in theory, you can you can power vehicles by burning hydrogen itself. But over time, I think the engineers have concluded that the most successful way to use hydrogen is in an electric vehicle format. So again, when we're talking about plug-in electric vehicles, we're talking about three of those four varieties, right? We're talking about battery electrics, the plug-in hybrid electric, which does require access to the grid as well as a hydrogen fuel cell. I want to get in a little bit into the question of why government is interested in seeing electric vehicles come into the marketplace. You mentioned a few minutes ago that, that, that some of the pioneers with regard to government policy, Japan and California were active in this space back in the 90s. Why? What is the policy rationale or the public interest that is served by governmental policy to support EVs? Well, I think that's a, it's interesting to analyze what's happening in China because it's, it 
is a good contrast to Japan and the United States. Japan and the United States got interested in it originally because of a combination of concern about oil imports and a concern about local air quality in cities. But when I talk to my students about this and they learn that China is deeply involved in electric vehicles, they immediately think it has something to do with pollution or the environment. But in fact, China's interest in the electric vehicle relate to industrial policy. Chinese policymakers for decades have craved a globally competitive auto industry. They just envy the fact of what Toyota did for Japan, what General Motors did for the United States, what Renault did for France, and what Volkswagen did for Germany. And they envision a mega Chinese automaker that can sell vehicles around the world and be a tremendous source of jobs and prosperity for China. This idea of leapfrogging the internal combustion engine and going directly to plug-in electric vehicles became a central tenet of Chinese industrial policy. And it was there long before China was ever seriously addressing their air pollution problem or their climate change issues. This was at the root. The second uh, point is, is that China from the 1970s to the 1990s was actually not a significant importer of oil. But after the country liberalized its economy and had tremendous growth, it started having enormous oil consumption, much more than they could produce within China. And much of that they had to import from the Mideast. So now you imagine you're a military planner in China and you're looking at the supply chain of oil coming from the Mideast all the way to the South China Sea. And they realized even with their improved naval capabilities, they could not defend those sea lanes all the way. And the military security rationale in China for electric vehicles became an important part of the story. So, you know, we think about this often here in the United States, certainly in my experience, discussing EVs with policymakers as a climate initiative or an urban air pollution initiative. And clearly, electric vehicles serve a purpose in that space. But what I hear you saying is that there is an economic security imperative, certainly the way China thinks about it, and perhaps even a national security imperative. So there are hard and soft power dynamics at play in this international competition for EV supremacy. Am I overstating that? No, I think that's without question the truth. The the geopolitics of electric vehicles are something that a lot of my students, when I talk to them about it, they, they are not aware that that's actually an underlying force driving this dynamic. If we don't think about it in those terms, do we run the risk of having our own industrial base somewhat challenged, our own access to new supply chains somewhat challenged, uh, and our own access to the critical raw materials for the development of batteries also diminished? Uh, Do we run a risk in not thinking about policies to support the development of EVs as broadly as other countries? So think, for example, if climate change was your only concern, then you would, you would make sure consumers got their plug-in electric vehicles, and you wouldn't be too concerned about where they came from or what their supply chains looked like. You just want their consumer to have a, have a clean plug-in electric vehicle. And you want your electricity system to be clean 
okay, and have as few emissions as possible. Once you've accomplished those two things, you're done. But that's not what this is about. This is a competition between countries around the world for the entire supply chain for the electric vehicle. So that includes the lithium-ion batteries, the electric motors, the cathodes, the electrodes, the anodes, the electrolytes underpin the lithium-ion battery, and then the original raw materials from lithium to cobalt and so forth. Where in the world will the economic prosperity that's generated by developing this entire supply chain, where will this occur? And China has a very well-developed national economic plan to have a dominant position throughout this entire supply chain. So what I hear you saying is that there is an international competition, a global competition among auto-producing nations and regions. It sounds like certain countries are moving more quickly than others. Is that your view? And if so, why is that? Well, if you look at the history of this, once we had the technological spillover, once it was apparent that lithium-ion batteries could actually be adapted to automotive applications, so that starts around 2007, 2008, the United States actually got off to a pretty quick position on this. And they had developed in the economic recovery packages that were put together by President Obama and the Congress, they, they put in some subsidy support to develop an electric vehicle industry in the United States. And the United States was moving probably ahead of virtually every country in the world at this point. And many of other countries, including China, copied elements of the Obama electric vehicle program. Then what happened is other countries got into it so deeply and so aggressively that they surpassed where the U.S. was. So originally it was the U.S., then China got more aggressive about it. Interestingly enough, Japan throughout this entire period was not that interested in plug-in electric vehicles because they had had tremendous success in developing their hybrid, conventional hybrid electric vehicles. And even today, about 35% of new cars sold in Japan were hybrid electric vehicles. Toyota and Honda were working with their governments to champion that technology. So you also have, from a technology policy point of view, you have governments aligned with their car makers with regard to the kinds of vehicles that they had a comparative advantage on. And this put China in a leadership role until Europe got in the game. And Europe doesn't really seriously get in the game until after the Volkswagen diesel emissions scandal. And it's clear that diesel technology is not going to be the future. And the German car companies shift aggressively to electric vehicles. Yeah. And it's interesting you mentioned the Volkswagen, the diesel scandal. Arguably, Volkswagen is one of the world's leaders in the development of EV technology today. So, right? So, it is interesting how significant that shift has been, both from an EU government policy perspective, but to your point, from an industry leadership perspective as well. Yes, indeed. And I think it's amazing when you think about it, you have a settlement with diesel, with governments around the world on how to deal with that problem. And one of the elements of that settlement is that Volkswagen is financing the development of an infrastructure and charging stations throughout the United States for electric vehicles. 
that purchasers of any vehicle, whether it's a Volkswagen or not, can be involved with those charging stations. This has been accelerating the ability of the United States to transition to electric vehicles. Yeah, which brings me to another sort of area I'd like to explore, which I found fascinating in your book, and and that is who the key players were and have been and arguably still are with regard to the development of EV policy. So I'm talking about the governmental players. You mentioned a few of them, you know, President Obama, for example. So let's talk about some of the household names, but also maybe some of the, shall I say, unsung heroes or, or lesser known players who have been really significant with regard to the development of policy uh, and regulation to support this shift? Well, uh, the two names that I think come to mind immediately, which are not household names, are Juan Gong in China and Mary Nichols in California. And let's talk about who they are, because I, I just it's worth a few minutes because it's really fascinating. Yes. Yeah, so in Wan Gong, you have an engineer who develops early in his career. He worked for Audi in Germany, but then he was asked by his government to come back to China and to run a research and development program. I think this was actually prior to 2010. And he works aggressively on the development of, of electric vehicles in China on a research basis and eventually becomes Minister of Science and Technology in the country of China. And in this capacity, he helped persuade a lot of political leaders in China about the leapfrog strategy for China. Because quite frankly, he explains it very clearly. He says he was not convinced that China could ever effectively compete with Japan, the United States, and France on the development of internal combustion engine vehicles. So he was trying to persuade a leapfrog strategy from a science perspective to put China in a leadership role. And he's in a vo- very important player in this, because and, he, and he's not a household name because his work in China, which helps cause China to flip-flop toward plug-in electric vehicles, now you have the biggest auto market in the world that's going to electric vehicles. Now you have all the other automakers who want to go to electric vehicles because they want to sell vehicles in China. Mary Nichols is extremely important because in the United States, we had this seesaw activity in our politics between people who wanted to move aggressively to electric vehicles and people who simply wanted to let the market forces decide this. And in the Trump administration particularly, there were the efforts to freeze out California from these discussions. And Mary Nichols was a veteran attorney and environmental activist and litigator. And quite frankly, she knew how to deal with Donald Trump. And she knew she had a substantial enough support within the industry that she could split the industry in this area. And she ultimately does. And when Trump's not reelected, basically a lot of the efforts that he put into put into place were easy for the new administration to turn over. And Mary Nichols, I think, is a critical player in the sustaining the support for electric vehicles, even during administrations that don't have any interest in it. Yeah, this is a really important story, I think, because you can even go back to periods of time well before the Trump administration, right? So, you know, California's authority as you know, arguably one of the world's preeminent automotive regulators, certainly in the environmental space, comes from the Clean Air Act, right? So you have in the early 1990s, 
the opportunity for California to set its own course. And Mary Nichols does an extraordinary job of protecting those interests throughout the that entire period <laughs> or virtually that entire period, right? So she's been in this role as the head of the California Air Resources Board, comes out of that role, comes back into that role at a critical point, as you point out, when there is, right, between federal policy uh, and state policy. So this idea of state action turns out to have been important for the development of EVs in the United States. Yeah, it turns out that Mary Nichols was also, I think, a very a very shrewd calculator of where the politics of the issue was, was headed and what the legal ramifications were likely to be. And she knew in the Trump administration that she already had a permission from the EPA to continue with the electric vehicle program. And there were many environmentalists who wanted a much stronger program in California. But she knew she didn't want to go through the process of seeking permission for another waiver during the Trump administration. So she held the line in that period when many of the environmentalists would have liked to have seen her gone further. But I think in hindsight, it's clear that she played her cards well, and now the issue is moving in her direction. Indeed. I want to sort of build on this theme of, you know, we've talked about sort of the, 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 ra- the government rationale, right? The public interest, we've talked about uh, some of the key players and, and, and how there's a global competition. Let's dig in a little bit to what is, what does it mean? What does governmental leadership or governmental policy mean in this space? You talked a few minutes ago, for example, about the lack of infrastructure. Is, is, is governmental policy important, for example, in the development of charging infrastructure? It's extremely important. And one of the key challenges here is how do you break the chicken and egg dilemma with electric vehicles? And that dilemma is you don't want to spend a lot of money on charging stations until you have people who have these electric vehicles. Because one of the worst things for the whole electric vehicle movement is for taxpayers to drive around and look at these charging stations that are completely unused. So you don't want to have, you want to have that development of the charging station network coordinated with the rollout of the vehicles themselves and the consumer use of those vehicles. That can't occur just naturally. That needs a combination of market participation and governmental coordination of those investments. Now, one of the big differences between China and the United States is in the United States, we have delegated that development of policy for charging station networks, predominantly to our state and local governments. And they're moving in different directions in different states on how fast they're developing this infrastructure. Whereas in China, in typical top-down fashion, you have a central government plan and you have uh, a development of a subsidy program to develop the infrastructure initially in the big mega cities of eastern China and then later developed nationwide within China. So there needs to be a very substantial coordination job, and it needs to either occur at the federal government or the state government, or more likely in our context, both levels of government need to be involved and they need to be harmonized. Yeah. I want to come back to that idea of how we harmonize or align so many different players, both private sector players, as well as public sector in the United States. But but let, let's, let's, let's unpack this 
government policy question a little bit more. You know, when I think about it, I think about when I think about the auto industry, I think about the demand side. So in other words, what's happening in the marketplace, how companies go to market, how customers purchase vehicles. And I think about the supply side, how vehicles are produced, what the supply chain looks like. Where do you see other countries engaged in policy development and how should we think about that in the United States? Is it on predominantly on the supply side, on the demand side? Does it need to be in both areas? Well, it definitely needs to be in both areas. But let's just take, for example, several of the successful countries in the world at commercializing plug-in electric vehicles. If you go to Norway, for example, and Norway right now is at 70 to 80% of their new vehicle purchases are plug-ins. How in the world did they get to 70, 80% when the average in the world is maybe 3% or something like that? It turns out that they use tax policy. These aren't regulations. They aren't subsidies. They're simply tax policy changes. So when someone purchases a vehicle, in a sense, the sales tax on the vehicle is much higher if it's a gasoline-powered vehicle than if it's an electric vehicle. But the difference is huge in the tax treatment. So if you go in in Norway into the showroom, you you basically are looking at a $5,000 purchase price advantage if you choose the electric version of a vehicle rather than the gasoline-powered version. And if it's a premium car, you may be looking at an $8,000 or $10,000 advantage. So when you change the dynamic at the at the point of purchase and make it that much less expensive for people to buy an electric vehicle, it turns out it is very feasible to persuade consumers to purchase electric vehicles. So this is interesting. We have a, I mean, we can compare and contrast, of course, but I mean, there is, for example, a $7,500 federal tax credit here in the United States for the purchase of, of, of a plug-in electric vehicle. Although, it is subject to debate right now in Congress as certain companies are no longer ha- have reached a per manufacturer cap associated with this tax credit. Is, is that a similar tool to what we've seen in Norway and other countries? And is it as successful? If not, what would need to change? Well, a couple of things to keep in mind about the differences. Tax credit is actually utilized by the taxpayer at the end of the tax year. Whereas in Norway, they have built into the tax system at the purchase stage of the vehicle and at the at the point of sale of the vehicle, you see that $5,000 difference. That's a very different psychologically from somebody who says, well, well, at the end of the tax year, I may be able to get some of this back. Okay. The second difference is in magnitude. So if you look in Norway, their tax differences are equivalent to like a tax credit of $15,000 rather than a tax credit of $7,500. So qualitatively, yes, the U.S. has something like this, but it's nowhere near the same magnitude. So I think that there are lots of different ways you can go about doing this. But the bottom line is, can you get to the point when the consumer purchases a vehicle that it's actually less expensive to purchase an electric vehicle than it is a gasoline-powered vehicle? If you can move the policy that far, then you can definitely move consumers without question. Yeah, and so that's a combination, right, um, of things. One is, as you as you point out, uh, policy at the point of purchase. But you know, there is a capital cost associated with the development of EVs, which raises this question about the supply side. So talk about policy on the supplier production side of the equation. Right. Well, you you also need to have some kind of protection for investors who are willing to put out huge sums of money on the premise that 
consumers will in fact purchase electric vehicles. Now you say in a normal marketplace, why do you have to have government protection of these investors? The investors can make these choices. If they fail, that's their problem. Okay. But here we have a situation where a lot of the uncertainty the investors are looking at are due to policies of other countries. So if you look at the supply chain for electric vehicles, you look at lithium, you look at cobalt and these raw materials, China is able to manipulate the prices of these raw materials based upon their own policies. And it's well demonstrated they have done so for geopolitical reasons, not just for economic reasons. So in that kind of setting, if the U.S. is determined that we're going to be involved in the supply chain, we have to have the government involved and protecting and guiding the industry to be able to supply the electric vehicles. Yeah. You know, when I look at the auto industry uh, and I look at employment across the automotive industry, millions of Americans rely on their, rely for their livelihoods on this industry. And most of them are working across the supply base. So they're building transmissions or they're building powertrains or they're building fuel pumps or they're building uh, fuel tanks, things that aren't going to be needed in the electric vehicle future. And so, you know, that does also raise I think a question for policymakers, right? How do you ensure that this shift is an opportunity for not only American investors and American companies, but American workers? Is is that is that also a consideration, or should it be a consideration for policymakers? Uh, it, it has to be, and as a practical matter, it will be because you've got politicians representing certain areas of the country where they're either dependent currently on the on the gasoline engine supply chain, or they have opportunity to be a big player in battery production or some of the components. So you're going to have politicians engaged in here and advocating the interests of their constituents and the part of the country that they come from. But I think it's important to remember on a global basis, if all we cared about was climate change, we wouldn't care about any of these issues. Because all we want to do is make sure that people get their electric vehicles and that the electricity system is clean. But there is a much more important and deeper competition underway for where the employment, where the prosperity, where the value added in, in these economies is. Who's going to benefit from the transition to electric vehicles? Because it's quite clear which regions of the world will be harmed. There are regions that are currently heavily invested in the internal combustion engine. Japan, the United States, parts of Europe, Germany and France. These are countries that are aware that if they do not get seriously involved in the electric vehicle and its entire supply chain, then they are putting their economies at substantial risk. You know, as you're talking about this risk, what comes to mind for me is, you know, you're describing a, a future or a near future, but there's a current dynamic that is running through the auto industry right now which suggests you're right. And that is the crisis that the industry is facing with regard to the availability of auto-grade microprocessors. So right now, today, the industry really relies on foreign producers of the chips that go into this advanced technology. Those supply chains aren't here in the United States. And what we're seeing now as demand increases is this tremendous 
mismatch between supply and demand and an inability for U.S. producers to really respond to this. And so we see plants idled in the United States, auto plants idled and auto workers not making vehicles. I mean, is this a kind of a, this could be kind of a preview of coming attractions to your point, right? If we don't think strategically about EV supply chains. Absolutely. And I think it's important to remember that from a standpoint of security, the economic security of our country, not all foreign countries are equally risky. So you'll find, for example, people say, oh, I didn't realize that we're still importing oil into the United States, even though we're the leading oil producer in the world now, and we're a net exporter of oil, but we're still importing oil. But if you look underneath the data at where these imports are are coming from, most of them are coming from Canada. And that's because Canada can offer very good deals, very reliable and very secure deals for American businesses to obtain oil. But the foreign producers we're talking about in the electric vehicle supply chain, are a, they're not all the Canadians. So we have countries like China, which are a major supplier of a lot of the electric vehicle components. You have countries such as the Congo in Africa and Indonesia in Asia. And these are important producers of raw materials like cobalt and nickel. And it's not obvious that we want to have the entire transportation system of the United States of America dependent on critical raw materials from countries whose governance systems don't pass basic standards of a competent government system. So let's put these two ideas together one, the idea that you're seeing rapid innovation and competition in the development of, of advanced technologies that are creating new transportation systems for consumers. In other words, robust private enterprise driving technology solutions. And at the same time, we're seeing significant governmental policy. You called it in the case of China, industrial policy, or at least an industrial strategy is it a stretch to suggest that a successful development of a plug-in electric vehicle industry and a successful transition to a plug-in electric vehicle marketplace effectively requires governmental policy? It certainly is enhanced tremendously by it. If we let's just take the example of the conventional hybrid electric vehicle innovation. Where did this idea come from? Certainly Toyota and Honda and their engineers were critical, but they would be the first to tell you that it was the government research and development program of the United States of America, which at the time was designed to help the big three in this country. And indeed, Toyota actually requested an opportunity to collaborate and participate in this program, but it was described as a program for the big three. But nonetheless, the advances of the Department of Energy's Research and Development Program, they were published in the open literature, they were presented at conferences, and the Toyota and Honda engineers, they went to these meetings, they took notes, they went back to their companies, and they used them. They used the insights about how to do hybrid electric vehicles based upon government research and development programs. And it's not obvious that you would have gotten nearly the pace of development of hybrid electric vehicles without the research and development of the federal government. China, of course, is looking at it the same way, and they'll do the best they can to harness 
their own research and development programs, but they will look to the advances of other countries as well. So as we wrap up here, I'm going to ask you a question that I get often, which is really, how long is it going to take? (laughs) In other words, you know, like, okay, so there's a lot of development, you know, we see in the marketplace in the United States today, roughly 50 different plug-in electric vehicle models available to consumers. That number by 2025 is probably going to be somewhere around 130 different models. So clearly the availability in the marketplace is increasing. You know, we're seeing companies developing the industrial base here and partnering with battery developers to have plants here in the United States. But when we think about recent views about where we want to be, for example, President Biden's goal of being at a 50% share of the new vehicle market for plug-in electric vehicles by the end of the decade. So by 2030, roughly 50% of new vehicle sales would be plug-in electrics. How does that sound to you? Are we on track? Is it likely to take longer than, than, you know, sort of that, that aspirational goal? And what would accelerate the process to getting there? Well, if you compare the market for electric vehicles in China and Europe to the market for electric vehicles in the United States, one of the most notable differences is in China and Europe, consumers at all income levels who are buying new vehicles, they find and purchase attractive electric vehicles. The United States market right now is still predominantly electric vehicles as a premium product for upper income buyers. So until you find, if the median price of a, for a new vehicle is $40,000, a transactional price, until you find consumers in the United States buying $30,000, $35,000 vehicles that are electric vehicles, until you get to that point, it's going to be very difficult to get to President Biden's goal. And that's why there is, I think, a robust discussion around how do you make sure that we can get affordable electric vehicles into the marketplace, both new vehicles and make sure that people, when they resell vehicles, they also can find a market for those electric vehicles on resale. These are very, very important issues for the U.S. market right now. Mm. As we wrap up, you know, we talked about the need for alignment. Uh, between federal government, state governments, different actors in the private sector. Should there be, in your view, a national task force or a, a leadership effort to bring all of these participants together to ensure that there is a sustained U.S. national strategy to not only develop the market, but to compete from an economic perspective with other regions around the world? There should be. And one of the ironies is we have international organizations that are collaborating and developing the transition toward electric vehicles, such as the International Energy Agency and its electric vehicle program. But we don't have in our own country at the national and state and local level a coordinated systematic governmental approach to doing this. And that will simply slow the pace of the transition in the U.S. So if we can find a way to create that, whether it be informal or formal, we 
we, if we can find a way to have that collaboration, it will accelerate the transition to electric vehicles. Professor John Graham, it has been an absolute pleasure to visit with you today. Thanks for being on The Overtake. Thank you so much. Good luck. For everyone else, thanks for joining us. Remember to like and follow the Alliance for Automotive Innovation on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn, and subscribe to The Overtake wherever podcasts can be found. Until next time, thanks.